Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to my perfect console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams. Or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a breakup. Games like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, on my perfect console. My guest today is an Emmy-nominated writer, sketch comedian, voice actor and performer. As a teenager, she studied improv comedy at the famous Improv Olympic Studio in her home city of Chicago, training that prepared her for when she later starred on Whose Line Is It Anyway and the sketch comedy show Key and Peel. She's worked on the writing staff of Saturday Night Live, The Twilight Zone and most recently the sixth season of Rick and Morty. Throughout her career she has also written and talked about video games, not least in her current role as one of the hosts of the popular games-related podcast Get Played. Comedy and video games are the same thing, fantasies within set rules, she once said. I love both of them equally, and when I can marry the two in some future project, I'll be complete. Welcome, Heather Ann Campbell. Hi. Wow. I, I don't remember saying that, but that's pretty good. <laughs> that was I dug that up from it was from quite a long time ago. So I wonder, have you ever managed to marry the two in in a project? I mean, I feel like uh, all of my projects sort of bleed together in some thematic way now. Mm-hmm. While there's always more work to be done, that I, I feel like I'm I'm trying to align the planets with that goal a little bit every time I write or podcast or improv or whatever. I mean, you said you know you you seem extremely busy, and you seem like you've been extremely busy <laughs> for a really long time. What is um. What does like a, a typical day in your life look like at the moment? So I guess a typical day is I wake up, I make myself coffee and breakfast. I watch anime uh, with coffee and breakfast because, you know, I've monetized that part of my life, but it also means that I have to do it every day. Uh, it is no longer like the luxury it used to be where I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch a, right. a new mm-hmm. show and, and it'll be great. Now I'm like, oh, I've got to watch my show with breakfast. And from there I go to work. Uh, whatever work that is, uh, if it's writing for TV, then I, you know, I had in a, I have a like an on-site office. I work on on that, or I set up to podcast or whatever. And the end of the day, very slowly, is also becoming a live performance schedule for me again. Okay, so I've been doing shows at UCB in LA and a, a few other venues around town. Is that like mainly improv stuff or stand up, or what are you doing at the moment? Live mostly improv. 
Um, I have, I, I used, I did a sketch show for about a decade at the theater, but we wrapped that show before COVID. So other than like mostly just uh, improv stuff that I'm doing now, but that's okay because I don't have any time to prepare for a live show that is also sketch. Right. So yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really happy with the way things are. I was interested what you said about like monetizing the area of your life that is watching anime because you know both you and I have have written about games professionally for for some time and there is that thing that when you're you know really young and you have a lovely hobby. And then you think, wouldn't it be amazing if I could get paid mm-hmm. to do this hobby? And then you start getting paid to do it. And then after a while, you're like, it really sucks that I have to now do this thing I loved for 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 work. So, yeah, if I could go back in time and, and tell myself, hey, it's good to monetize. I would be like, it's good to monetize the things you love. It's good to figure out a way to make money from playing video games. It's good to figure out a way to make money from writing sketch. But Almost the same way. If you love to take a, a trip somewhere in the world and travel, the first thing they tell you is where the exits are on the plane. <laughs> I feel like that should be the thing that you remember at all times when monetizing the thing you love is like, okay, this is great for now, but I really have to start looking for the exits so I don't burn out my free time. Yeah. You, you grew up in Chicago, but I read one interview where it sounded like you had quite an outdoorsy childhood as well. You know, what was what was that like? What was it like growing up and when did video games enter your life? So uh, the truth is that that outdoorsy life was um, the weekends I would always spend in Wisconsin. My parents had this empty lot. And so I played a lot outside by myself. And that was a great way to cultivate my imagination. But uh, we also would drive to the nearest town, which was about a half hour away from this empty lot. And they had a pizza parlor there that had arcade machines in it oh nice so i'd get an allowance of like a dollar a week and i would drop it into those machines as soon as i got it i remember standing on top of egg crates or chairs to play whatever game was at that pizza parlor it wasn't like a a pizza hut or or like a showbiz chuck e cheese style thing there weren't a ton of arcade machines but there were like two or three Uh and then i think they also had in like the bar area table like one of those old tabletop pac-man games so i would associate video games with a once in a while luxury opportunity to do something different and so very early on those uh that like dopamine hit was perfectly priming me for a lifetime of loving video games and i think you know as soon as i could articulate hey i I want i want something for my birthday i was asking for video games at home so i've been playing my whole life and sometimes i think about like what if i'd been born in like the victorian era and i would have been so (laughs) bored you would have had a stick and a hoop or something like that i i would have been yeah it would have been a nightmare (laughs) or maybe i would have been addicted to like parlor games like i would have been like a victorian era poker player (laughs) i like i've always loved playing video games um and man, they have come a long way. Woof. What, what did your your parents do for work? Uh, my mom was like a secretary and my dad was a construction worker. They aren't industry people. Like a lot of people in uh, in Hollywood come from some sort of lineage. The Nepo babies, they call them, don't they? Mate? Yeah, Nepo babies, mm-hmm. Nepo babies. But I think that growing up with regular parents, and I will say that I had the privilege of loving parents. That is a... Uh, a privilege that a lot of people don't don't get to experience and I'm very grateful for it but they were also very regular <laughs> they were they weren't like you have to focus on 
they they didn't. They were just like, you know, figure out what you like and 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 figure out if you can do it for money. And if you can't, there's always, you know, work, work if uh, if things don't work out for you. So you've always got a backup plan of come to the job site and lay down some wood <laughs> or or learn to type. <laughs> so the 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 premise of this podcast is we're going to build you uh, your very own console and uh, I'd like you to choose the five games you want to you want to put on there. Um, can you tell me about the, the first game that you would like to install on your on your perfect console? So I think it's important when, when I heard what the premise of this was, I wanted to do it correct. <laughs> Not like it wasn't like, oh, I want to I want to build my perfect console sort of emotionally. Instead, I was like, OK, he said this console is only going to have five games on it. And so I have to do it right. So some of these aren't my favorite games, but I was thinking lo- like the longevity of the console. Right. Mm. How 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 to make it work. And so my first pick is Tetris. I think if you're going to have one console for the rest of your life, you need a game like Tetris to be able to play forever. I think of it almost as a palate cleanser in between the other games that are installed on this perfect console. As for my experience with Tetris, my cousins had a Nintendo and my aunt was really good at Tetris. (laughs) Watching a a woman in her, I mean, she must have been in her 30s when I was a kid. Maybe she was in her late 20s, I don't know. She was unfathomably old (laughs) to me at that age. And watching her play Tetris was like watching a magic trick. Because when you're a kid, Tetris is a little overwhelming. And seeing somebody manage the constant anxiety of those pieces falling and pulling off combos and things was just wild. (laughs) And it made you like, I was like, wow, my my aunt is a human being. She's got like wants and dreams. I don't know, when I was like a kid, I didn't know a single adult who played video games like for fun or, or let alone being proficient at them. So I don't know, was that was that sort of part of the appeal as well, seeing an old person who actually was interested in this stuff? It is. I, I didn't know any other adults who played video games. I think my mom's co-worker played a computer game and sometimes would trade hints for like King's Quest games. That was it. Like that, I didn't know any other adults who played video games, and it was uh, it was pretty magical watching her play as a kid. Yeah. But also, you know, when I would get a chance to play Tetris, I was like, man, you could literally do this forever. <laughs> Tetris is perfect. You, you know, you, nobody's gonna get tired of chess, right? And in the same way, I feel like yes. if you if you had Tetris forever, you would always play it. Like there'd never be a point where you'd be like all right, I'm done with this. You might give it a few months off, maybe even a year. Certainly, I've gone years without playing Tetris, but I also have always played it. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. It feels like there's no skill ceiling to it. It's something you can just mature at through life, let's say. That's amazing. It's interesting as well that the Nintendo Entertainment System was owned, was at your cousin's house, I assume. So, like, it's another thing, like this arcade that you occasionally got to go to, like it's this thing that's slightly out of reach yeah. that is really appealing. I wonder if that sort of, um, you know, <laughs> had some role in yeah, forming your brain. <laughs> it's like a, a Shangri-La that only appears once in a while. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, Tetris has come out of the clouds and, and it has taken shape and form. I was a Sega kid uh, and we didn't have Tetris. On uh, We had Columns, which was fine. Like, Columns <laughs> is great. It's got good music. It's pretty. Yeah. But... Like, if Tetris didn't exist, then Columns would be, would be sure, up there, yeah. right? But Tetris does exist. But Tetris exists. Right. If... Uh, <laughs> If Mario didn't exist, we would have loved Bonk's Adventure, uh, but it Mario exists. <laughs> what's, uh, by the way, what's your aunt's name? Her, her name is Sue, Aunt Sue. Okay, shout out Aunt Sue. Yeah, I haven't uh, spoken with her for many, 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 many years, oh, okay. but it is just a, uh, it is a nice nostalgic area of my childhood that was a, a neat exposure to video games in a cool way. And you, I, I read you went to quite a, uh, you went to a religious school, is that correct? Yeah, I went to, I was at a religious uh, elementary and high school. Wow, you've done a lot of research. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But what, so, just yeah. I know in the US that can mean something different maybe to in the UK, like what, what level are we talking here? Um, you know, was it just, you did prayers at the beginning of the day or was like it the whole, the whole shebang? Oh, oh no, it was the whole shebang, which is also wild because my parents aren't religious. We were just zoned in, in this area of Chicago I grew up in, we were zoned for a not particularly great public school. I remember when we were we were touring the public school, high school I was zoned for, that there had just been a stabbing. Also, in terms of American tragedies, it really ranks low. Like, it, it almost seems quaint. Uh, but that was the case. It was like, oh, there had just been a kid stabbed that week. And so... My parents were like, let's pool our resources and send her to a private school that is a significant distance away and I think was the least expensive option for them. But it was also sort of deeply religious. In elementary school, I had to go to church twice a week. My high school was almost uh, apo ap apocryphal. Like it was it. We were sort of indoctrinated with this idea that the world was ending. Also, it was extremely anti-gay. Right. And as those things were sort of revealing themselves to me, like as my queerness was revealing itself to me in high school, I was scared all the time. Of course. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> scared both, scared that I was gay and also scared that the world was going to end. Oh, man. I really got to keep this under wraps because Jesus is coming back soon. And he's going to be real upset at me personally. Oh, gosh. The world's going to end even before I have a chance to be properly gay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny thinking back on it now. Why do you, why do you ask about that in terms of relationship to video gaming? I was actually asking in terms of like how you then got into performing, because I suppose like, a, you know, that sort of environment doesn't always nurture the artistic kids ah. who want to like do performance and things like that. So, you know, how did you find that that outlet, I suppose, when you were that age? Well, uh, when I was in high school, there wasn't a proper funded theater program, but there was an after school theater program that I think this dude just volunteered to do like I don't think he was being paid for it but was sort of there was a stage at the school uh. and we would put on plays once or twice a year he took it upon himself to sort of educate us in the idea that theater existed <laughs> and you know brought us into the uh into downtown to see plays or to see comedy uh this guy's name was ian gerber and he brought us to to see improv at improv olympic and i was like 
wow, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I can't believe this is happening live on stage in front of me. And I believe I talked to my parents maybe the week after and was like, hey, I want to go see this thing again. And they were, again, loving, supportive parents. And so they drove me into the city. And I mean, it wasn't that far. I was like, 15 minutes away, 10 minutes away. It wasn't like, oh, we live in the suburbs. and drive. This was like blocks from the house. And they drove me in and, and, and were like, yeah, let's go see this show. They also offered a, a jam, like an improv jam, where anybody could get up on stage and, and try it out. So I started going to the improv jam. The owner of the theater was like, hey, you're young. It would be pretty crazy for you to start taking classes at this age. And I was like, okay. Wow. So I started taking classes in high school <laughs> as a child. So w- w- how old are you at this point? I must have been 15 when I started taking classes. That's really young for improv, isn't it? Yeah, especially in, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. It was nowadays you see high school improv teams and high school, you know, scholarship improv classes at UCB or, you know, you know, there's more of a there's a structure and a foundation for uh, bringing young people into the improv community. But when I started, I was easily 10 years younger than everybody in the room. And by the time I was 18, I'd been at the theater for three years. A veteran. So they just started serving me alcohol because they were like, (laughs) she must be 21. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's... um... Why don't we come to you as your second game? Can you tell us what it is and how you first came to play it? Uh, this is funny. It's Street Fighter 3. And it's kind of connected to this time in my life because... There was an arcade several blocks away from the improv theater. Oftentimes, I would go to classes in the day, and then there'd be a break in between those classes and, like, the nighttime shows that I would either watch or perform in. I had time to kill. Didn't there was, Like, I couldn't go to a bar with everyone else because I would get carded. So I would just leave <laughs> and go to the arcade... And uh, the arcade nearest to Improv Olympic had Street Fighter 3. I would play for hours at this arcade and then walk back to Improv Olympic and play Street Fighter 3. So, or, 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 and do improv shows. Do you remember which, because there were three versions of Street Fighter 3, weren't they? Um, the most sort of famous and enduring of which was Third Strike, the, the last revision. Do you remember which one you were playing at the time? So I think I was playing Second Impact. I think I, mm. they, the first time I went, they had regular vanilla Street Fighter 3, and I could not believe how gorgeous it looked. Right. Like, mm. to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was uh, 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 playing video games in, I think there was 98, 99, they... Just having more than four frames of animation kind of was incredible. So to have these lush walk cycles and like all the characters having completely different animation from one another. Also, like the um, the way that Chun-Li would sort of shuffle step or uh, it, it was just it was really robust and, and beautiful in addition to being a great game. 
So very, yeah. very satisfying. I'm so excited you picked Street Fighter 3 because it's like the real like elitist choice, <laughs> isn't it? Like most people are like, no, Street Fighter 2 or maybe they've like played Street Fighter 5. But if you like really know fighting games, then you know Street Fighter 3 is like, it's the one, it's the one, isn't it? I mean, and it was beautiful and it was the last of those 2D hand-drawn games that Capcom in Japan put out. Yeah. You know, really the the end of an era and particularly Third Strike is just, I mean, it's just gorgeous. It holds up so well and and it is still like played so much today on the tournament scene. Yeah, it really is. And the reason I would love it on my perfect console is with an asterisk. A few of these have asterisks uh, after them, which is that I would want the console to have in perpetuity online play okay so i don't just want street fighter 3 on my perfect console my perfect console is legacy internet connected forever (laughs) if people drop in it's gonna bum the price up i don't care you know what it's my perfect console (laughs) you maybe they only need to sell three of them (laughs) but to be able to play street fighter 3 to drop in and, and play with other people would be so awesome and it's like tetris there's infinite variety to Street Fighter 3 forever. I God, I love that game. It's so... The music's great. It's so good. It's so good. I've t- I mean, it's also what? It's 2023. So I've been talking about Street Fighter 3 for 20 years, 24 years. Who knows? I, I, I don't think I'm going to... I'm going to be like 60 and, and talking about Street Fighter 3. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, why not? There's lots of young, there's lots of young players coming in as well. I think that's the exciting. If you follow sort of competitive fighting games, yeah, you can. I mean, there's slight, there's a slight worry that games like you know Third Strike are, are just for for sort of people who are getting a bit older now. But there's there's like young people coming in and learning the game, and um, it's really exciting. I yeah. think. Yep. So I read that you you know all of this. You've had all of this sort of. Um, childhood training on, on how to be a comedian <laughs> and um, at some point you you decide that you also alongside this want to go and become a, a games journalist and I read like you sort of just alluded to it in this interview you didn't really talk about it much but you you went for a job at a, a games magazine and used your improv skills to get the job oh. can you just tell us that story yeah I okay Well, so I was writing for a zine, just like a non-paying gig for this really lovely little video game magazine called The Gamer's Quarter, uh, which had such an incredible staff of people who were all from this uh, forum online. And because we wrote for the zine, we were able to get press press passes to uh, E3. Um, So we all went to E3. What a lovely memory that is, by the way. Uh, it's like being young and going to E3 and feeling like you snuck in almost because you just wrote a couple articles for, for free. But I went to, I wanted to get a job because I was, I was delivering groceries and I was transcribing reality TV for cash and it, my life was... Wait, what? 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 What, what is that? What, so, what's that job? Imagine hell. I would get DVDs of reality television that had not yet aired. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, right? Um, The original series. But these episodes are made without scripts. And if you're going to dub them or subtitle them in foreign countries, they need a script to be made. So they would hand these discs off to transcribers who would go through second by second and transcribe both foreground and background dialogue and create these 300-page scripts 
that were a single episode of Queer Eye, the faster you typed these, the more the more sense it made. It sounds stressful and mundane all at the same time. It was so stressful and so horrible because there's some of the background dialogue on these shows is just mumble gibberish that isn't they're not editing for that dialogue. So sentences would break off constantly in the background all the time. Like I would deliver groceries all day long. And then at night, I would transcribe reality TV and then go do an improv show. And you were like, something needs to change. <laughs> something, please. <laughs> I, need, I need an outlet of it's not. So I, I went to E3 and I was like, I'm just going to go ask for a job at Edge magazine, which was my <laughs> favorite magazine at the time, uh, UK's Edge. I went to the office, like their on-site office, and I was like, hey, and I'd brought like a portfolio, like a paper portfolio. Those were the days. One of the guys who was on staff was a guy named Colin Campbell. Um, and so I went to the front desk area of the Edge offices and was <laughs> like, hey, is Colin here? Uh, and they were like, no, he's out. And I was like, oh, can you tell him I stopped by? And they're like, do you have a meeting? And I was like, no, 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 I have nothing on the books, but it's uh, my name's Heather. And then as if he, I was related to him, just said, Campbell, Heather Campbell. And they went, oh, OK, great. And I was like, yeah. Uh, so when's he going to be back? <laughs> they were like, they were like uh, noon or something. All right, OK, I'll come back then. So I came back at noon. And sat down with him, and he's like, "What are we meeting about?" I'm like, "Oh, I don't have a meeting. I'm I'm asking for a job." And I gave him my portfolio, and he's like, "What?" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm. I promise, if you read these articles, you'll give me work, and that's it. Like, that's the guarantee. If you just read them, you'll hire me because I'm 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 that good." But really, I was improvising what a confident person would say, and that because I was yeah. so nervous because I'd never conned my way into any space like everything i had done was so tenuous so i didn't hear anything for i don't know a month or something and i was like well it was worth a shot and it was a lot it was a good anecdote and then they called me and they were like hey we read your um we, we read your articles and we'd love you to be an la correspondent and i was like okay great so i worked for their online portal which at the time was called i think nextgen.biz yeah um, and as soon as I had an article up on that website, I immediately went to a different magazine that was in LA and was like, Hey, I'm the correspondent for edge in the UK, but I live here and I'd rather work locally uh -huh. and then got hired for play magazine. Um, and, and that was that, uh, but it was, it was like chaining jumps in Sonic. Like it was really... <laughs> press square at the right time <laughs> to launch from one place to another as fast as possible. Mm. Wow. I did not know any of that. Amazing. And um, I mean, the thing you say about um, pretending to be a confident person, that is, I mean, that's so true, isn't it? So often in life, you when you get yourself in those situations, you just have to go right. Yeah. Give yourself a little talking to and and almost do acting right and and yeah so much yeah that that can do so much it can get you so far can't it yeah it's really it's I'm like I don't deserve to be hired like the, I I I truly don't deserve it I I don't have I didn't go to school for this I do, I I don't have a resume that says I've written for anything other than this one zine but if I can improvise 
the person who does deserve this job, then maybe I can get the job and and I'll either fail at it or succeed. But just getting through that doorway is going to require a sort of personal fiction that I'm like, oh, I'm this person. Mm. So, yeah, I just I truly just improvised super confident, super like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got it. I got it. That's great. Well, and I suppose you you did have the clippings. You like believed in the substance of what you were selling, right? You knew, you, like you said a minute ago, you were like, if you just read this, then you'll hire me. And so, th- right. But that's the imp- that was the improv. <laughs> oh, right. That, like that. I mean, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> that was what a confident person would say. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to hear from this guy again, and <laughs> and rightfully so. I. I I implied familial relationship to in order to get to this guy's desk. <laughs> I'm his long lost daughter. <laughs> uh, but no, it was all like that was the the play was that's what a confident person would say. And in truth, if I'd been more accurate and like uh, transparent, I would have been like, hey, I wrote these articles. I have no idea if they're good enough to be considered for your job. I have no resume. I'm I'm just some idiot who like basically lied to get into this room. But they're not going to hire that person. And even they're if you give me a- the job, I'm going to like leave after one article. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if they, if, if I had, because I was like, if I was the person on the other side of this desk and some young woman comes in and like tosses her file on the desk and is like, if you read this, you'll hire me. That's how good they are then it's going to color the way that I read that material too. Yeah, that's true. Have you considered doing a self-help book? Because the, I think you could do really well off this. I do not. No. <laughs> no way. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's come to your, your third okay. choice. Can you, can you tell us about it? So my third choice is uh, one of my favorite story games of all time, The Last of Us. Uh, which I think is a, a really compelling game on its own right. Uh, if you scale up the difficulty, it's also a, a really exciting game to play against just the machine itself. Obviously, you'll be able to memorize, inevitably memorize everything there is that the game has to offer, and you'll know all the story beats, and it will uh, no longer be the satisfying experience that you started with, but... The Last of Us also comes with Factions Multiplayer. And on my perfect console, uh, this game is almost a two-in-one because I've already said Legacy Online Forever. Mm. Uh, So I love playing Factions Online and it's it's just taking the mechanics of The Last of Us and giving you human opponents and and all the crafting is there. It's it was a really really fun time in my life. Can you just take take us through the the mechanics? Because I'm not super familiar. I think I probably played it at the time, but I can't remember. So so is it like team deathmatch? Yeah, it's a team team deathmatch or team capture the flag. In The Last of Us proper, you have to collect shit that you find in drawers in order to make weapons. So that's in the multiplayer. You have to run around and collect bits and bops in order to craft. Uh, upgrades for your weapons on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has a, a mechanic where you listen for your opponents. 
So it rewards like creeping and strategy instead of just like run and gunning. There are run and gun sections, but it's it's more like a the way that the symphony, uh, like a like a symphony has movements. The Last of Us multiplayer has like slow bits and fast bits, which is really rewarding as like a play experience. So you'll listen through walls and you'll try and like figure out where people are. You'll craft your weapons, but you're going up against live human opponents. Did you have like a group that you were playing with uh, or, or were you just like matching with randoms when you got oh, into this? Oh, just matching with randos. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone who was playing factions. I also was mic on and oh, to probably the annoyance of a lot of the people who I was playing with. Right. Like I was in world <laughs> voicing. So I was just, <laughs> I feel like, and I should point out, you are a, you are a professional voice actor. So. <laughs> I feel like these these assholes took my daughter. We got to get them, and they were like, "What? The f- what? <laughs> like fifteen year old kids?" I love it because, like, mo- most women are like, "I am never turning my mic on," and, on, and you just leaned right into that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love I love both the offline and online game of The Last of Us, and. uh so yeah, I have to, I mean, it has to be on my perfect console. It also, I feel like the, in terms of just the moment in your life when you first play The Last of Us and you play through that cold open, you're like, oh shit, something just happened in games. Oh. And I'm not saying that there weren't already stories being told. It was just this like understanding of story structure that was suddenly being placed in a game uh-huh. and you were front loading this game with a cold open that had extraordinary emotional impact because you had started the game as the character who ends up dying. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it it was it was like I think what Neil Druckmann and the team did was they were like what makes movies and games different from one another? is that you the the player character is infused with the personality of the person on the couch playing it. Yeah. Like different people are going to spend different amounts of time going through drawers or looking at the stuff on the walls or maybe they just race from story point to story point, but that is putting you into the game. Yeah. Like your personality and your style of play is going to affect the character you're seeing on screen and if that character dies, you've secretly ascribed a similarity between you and this character so the trick of of that is it's really really narratively potent i can loved it man it's so good head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the award-winning movie poor things starring emma stone mark ruffalo and willem dafoe check out the new documentary freaknik the wildest party never told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. There are many improv shows on TV, but the one that everyone knows is um, Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is big in the UK and big in the US. And um, and at some point, like you have done enough improv that you get 
picked to go on that show. You know, what, what did it feel like when you walked onto that set as a as a lifelong improv performer? So there's two stories here. One is that when I was 19, I auditioned for Who's Line. So I'd been improvising for five years and the show the show was casting new people and I got scouted at an improv festival and auditioned. I was either 18 or 19, uh, made it all the way to the final cut and they were like, how old are you? Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> said my age, whatever it was. Well, I could drink. <laughs> I couldn't. I know I couldn't drink yet. So I wasn't yet 21. In one specific place, I could drink. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the age I was, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there, uh, they were like, oh, well, you're really good, but why don't you come well, why don't you come back when you're older? And I was like, okay. And I walked I walked away. Yeah. And you know, they didn't fucking call me in no. 10 years. They weren't like, hey, you're older now. <laughs> uh so when Cruise Line was auditioning in LA, I went to the open audition just like everybody else. You're like, why didn't you call me? <laughs> <laughs> When I I went through all these rounds of auditions and and like you're you're watching like this it, it was very isn't there like a musical or something or fame I don't know there's like Broadway plays about the idea of auditioning for Broadway mm. where it's like you and a group of dancers and everybody's perfect and then they just start arbitrarily choosing people to leave oh jeez and that's what it felt like it it there was just like the most incredible improvisers in the city. And at some point, they just had to get it down to four people. Yeah. So, like, in the last six cuts, I was like, it could be me. Because everybody here is equivalently good. But I made it through to being cast on the show. And after I was cast and the contracts were signed, I was like, I came back. <laughs> and uh, the guy who was still running the show oh, was like, was? what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, when I was a kid, I auditioned for you. And you said, someday, come back when you're older. And I did. And I, I'm here I am. And he was like, I have no memory of this. And I was like, damn oh, it. Oh, no. That's in the movie of this scene. He he shouldn't say, I have no memory of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was walking onto the Who's Line stage. It, it Very similarly, walking into the Saturday Night Live stage area, both of them felt like... I had been digitally inserted into archive footage. Like my experience of it was I shouldn't be in the room. Not not because I didn't deserve to be there, but it felt like I like, because it's the same thing that you've seen on television. It felt like those right, old right, 90s right. tropes where somebody gets sucked into their TV. Um by Forrest I, Gump or something. Yeah, yeah. When I walked onto the Goose Line stage, because it was for the 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 newest edition with uh, Aisha, the backdrop, mm. the painted backdrop was the same backdrop from when I was a kid. Yeah, right. Mm. And I was like, what the, f that was the weirdest part was that the backdrop was this, I expected it to be like glossied up or so, but it's the same mm. set. Right, right. Uh, Not a big budget then to update it. Oh, no, 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 that, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you get the first words out of your mouth when you're because you must have been you know i don't know just starstruck or something not by the people you're with but just by the situation so i think i did the same thing that i did for the interview with colin campbell which was like i i improvised the person 
who was good enough to improvise on whose line. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Like, yeah. I was like, I there's no way I have the confidence to just truly be here and in the moment and present. But I know what that person would be like, and I'm a good enough improviser that I can improvise that person. Mm-hmm. So I'll just improvise the person who's who's the newest addition to the Who's Line cast and doesn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Without that barrier, I think I would have been really unsettled. And I know that sounds like, I don't know, dissociative or something, but it was really just like, okay, well, I I don't want to go out there and be visibly nervous or sweating, so I'll just right. improvise from the moment I walk on stage <laughs> as the person who's supposed to be here. <laughs> They're like, why aren't you saying anything? You're like, I'm already improvising, actually. <laughs> I'm doing so much work. <laughs> for, for me, like as a as an audience member, watching improv is a it can feel a bit like watching a trapeze artist or something. You know, the some of the thrill comes from the threat of the person failing or something and um, mm. you get the you know it, it feels good when they don't right have you you know mm-hmm. have you said that ever done the comedy equivalent of, of of falling off the wire i'm sure i have but it wasn't it's not memorable to mm-hmm. me like i don't really recall any major improv successes nor any major improv failures mm-hmm. it's it's like a a flow state very similar to gaming where you just are kind of perpetually creating and it feels like a river instead of calculated choices that you are making in any given moment. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. I'm sure I failed. I'm I'm sure it's been caught on camera. I have no memory of it. And also people will quote shit that I said on on the show to me and I'll be like, I have I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's probably healthy because like but part of the part of the you know, what's wonderful about improv is that it's in the moment, right? So you don't want to go back and study it necessarily or, or recall everything. Oh yeah, you said. no. Woof, what a that would suck. What a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Should we uh should we take a break and come to your, your fourth game? Can you tell us about it and when you first started playing it? Okay. I'm really sorry to the listeners of Get Played who have week on week heard me you know celebrating this game and here maybe you've come to this show to listen to me talk about something else and i'm still fucking talking about Fortnite. October of last year, on the podcast, uh, we played a month of games that we thought each of our fellow hosts would hate. And my fellow host, Nick Weiger, um, doesn't like online shooters and he doesn't like talking. So he, so we, we chose Fortnite for him. Um, but we all have to play the game that we are uh, giving to the other people. So I started playing Fortnite and I was like, oh my God, this is great. The kids were right. Uh, like it is when when Facebook talks about wanting to create the metaverse, it already exists. It is Fortnite. 
There are individually tailored, user-generated arenas where there are absolutely separate video games to play, obstacle courses, racing games, stuff that is being built by the player base. And then there are your mainline Fortnite experiences and then your mainline competitive Fortnite experiences, which are build-based battle royale and zero-build battle royale. Because Fortnite started as like a environmental crafting game and has become an online battle royale legacy game. And then additionally, because they now have so such a large player base, they also have partnerships with all of these disparate IP. So you can choose to play as characters that don't have any business being sharing the same screen. Like... You can play as Dragon Ball versus Kylo Ren versus My Hero Academia versus uh, the guy from the Evil Dead, Ash Williams. Yeah. Like there's, it is multi generational IP. It's not just the things being watched now. It is things that have been being watched for. I mean, I don't even know when Terminator came out. Forty years ago, something like that. Yeah, it's kind of an every game. Mm. Um. And because they have so much fucking money being pumped into this thing every every month, it is also extremely polished and very, very satisfying to play. I've been deeply, deeply excited to play this game every time I get a chance to do it. And I'm slowly building up a group of fellow players and playing squad-based combat with those people with mics on. And that's... Oh, such a new and exciting way to play video games oh, for nice. me. Yeah. Because I've been a solo player for yeah. most of my life. Just with your mic on, shouting at strangers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just <laughs> shouting, <laughs> shouting. My wife, my my wife died in the apocalypse. <laughs> but now I'm I'm just actually playing with people and being like, hey, there's you know, shoot her up on the hill at two fifty three Northwest or whatever. Um, but it's, it, I, I don't, I know that eventually there will be a better game, but for right now, if you want to play multiplayer battle royale combat with the, the luxury and fun of playing with all these different IP, like there, the weapons will drop into the game and it'll be like this week you have lightsabers, like actual lightsabers, not knock off lightsabers actual lightsabers <laughs> or like this week there's as we record there are anime power-ups from my hero academia that are specific to the anime which will go away in a month so the content's also evolving and refreshing it's great i love it I, i'm without apology yeah the, the the fact that the underlying game is, is robust is so good and some people do look down their notes at it but i do think they're wrong to do so it wouldn't have had the longevity it does if it wasn't a good game. But I, I think that kind of, you know, sometimes I feel like it's like a giant billboard or like an advertising canvas for people because you do get these uh -huh. companies bringing their IP in for a few weeks and goodness knows how much they paid to do so. But it, it's sort of excusable when, when the game is so good. And, and it has, you know, like you say, like if you bring Star Wars in, they bring in like uh, lightsabers and it has a meaningful effect on the on the game mechanics so so it, it's excusable yeah. i think for those reasons yeah i don't know of another game where like famous weapons could be dropped into the game without breaking the game uh, uh, and then you know 
and it, it entices the player to play during those times if they want to play with those weapons. And all of, again, all the stuff they're talking about with the metaverse, it's like, what if you could hold an actual lightsaber? It's like, you you literally can already do that in a different game. Mm. And it's like, what if you could hold a The only thing I wish they'd put is into the game is like Gundam stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like they have to be close because they have all these other anime properties. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, because it would be so awesome to temporarily power up into a giant mech. <laughs> Uh, for like 10 seconds or whatever, Ready Player One style. Um, like, I hope that happens. And I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. I'm be- sure they're working yeah, if on you that. Can, if you can imagine it, Fortnite can do it. Um, okay, let's let's just have a... I think people who are listening to this will be interested in how you came to write for Rick and Morty, which is, you know, such a beloved show by so many people. Um, how did How did that come about? So there's a kind of a long chain to get there. The long chain is I perform with Jeff Davis on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And prior to that on um, Drew Carey's Improvaganza. Jeff Davis is in a orbit of, of friends with Dan Harmon, Rob Schraub, and that, and that sort of group of comedians. So I, by, by proxy of hanging out with Jeff, uh, become sort of uh familiar with those guys i am hired for a job at fox adhd and a guy who is really good friends with dan gets a show on fox adhd and i'm in the writer's room for that show which was called high school usa so i meet Harmon professionally uh working on that show but even though i'm a huge fan of rick and morty i don't want to be the person who calls up Dan and is like, hey, dude, I want to work on your show. Mm. Like, if I can get there legitimately, or if he thinks of me to hire me, great. But I don't like, I don't like putting my finger on the friendship scale. I'd rather earn my way there. So I'm working and working for all the years that the show is on and telling my reps, you know, if you ever hear about Rick and Morty hiring, let me know. And now I'd love to apply. And I'm sure that if I apply for the job, they'll see my name on the resume. And they'll be like, oh, it's Heather. Yeah, uh-huh. sure. If they want me involved, then they can bring me in. <laughs> but <laughs> so time goes by and I get diagnosed with cancer. Oh. And uh, I, I go through surgery and recovery. And Harmon calls me and he's like, Dude, I don't know why I haven't asked you to write on Rick and Morty. Oh, wow. But when I thought maybe you would die of cancer, I was like, oh, my God, one of my regrets is going to be, why didn't I ask Heather to write for the show? And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, do you do you want to write for Rick and Morty? And I was like, yes. And he was like, great. <laughs> uh, and then and that's how I crossed that bridge. But it literally took like a... a sort of a life and death <laughs> right you can't you can't pass that on as advice to a young aspiring yeah, no, writer no 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 it's um i mean the truth is the best the best advice i could give is to constantly be working Boom. because if i hadn't been working then it wouldn't have made a difference if there had been this sort of wake-up call yeah. uh because i wouldn't have had the body of work that would have allowed him to want to hire me mm. But I had been working constantly on shows that both he had been involved in and also 
shows that his friends had been involved in, writers on Rick and Morty who went from shows I was on to Rick and Morty, etc. So there's like a saying that's like, it's like 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration mm. or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah. it feels like that. It was 99% doing everything I could to be the kind of writer that they'd want to hire and 1% some unknowable factor right yeah and whether that's being in the right bar at the right time having the right conversation uh you know all of these jobs are usually linked by some social factor yeah. it's not just that there's raw scripts going into these places it's somebody says oh you should look into this person they're very good so there's always some intangible other thing that one percent that gets people from one place to the next yeah right and for me it just happened to be a deadly disease <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah it's like a i guess in dungeons and dragons that's the role that the dice plays right it's that little bit yes. of um, yeah it's trying to yeah trying to turn that into a game that one percent factor you're talking about yeah there's 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 one of the ways i could have gone into that room is to roll a natural 20 <laughs> but the what the role i did was i botched i had double <laughs> snake eyes <laughs> and that still got me into the room <laughs> well i'm very glad that you got through that by the way i should say we're like we're, oh we're yeah laughing, me too but yeah <laughs> And I, I just wanted to ask you the, you know, the the show w which I enjoy greatly, but it has been embroiled like in a few scandals lately. I definitely don't want to get into that with you at all, so don't panic. But, but I'm I'm interested in like how you personally have dealt with being attached to something very high profile that's very widely loved for one thing one moment, and then it's widely scrutinised for something else the next. So have you like been able to sit with that tension comfortably, or is it, or is it not like that? Um, the truth is, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, um, so I can't, like, I don't, I, I, like, I, I, I think I just can't answer. I'm not asking for any specifics or anything like that. I was just, um, you know, I, I suppose it's when you're attached to any sort of platform, if you're writing for a certain place or anything like that, sometimes they can get involved in, you know, the, the eye of the news can go on those and sometimes that can put you if you've got an association in a complex psychological place. It was more that I was I was wondering about rather than, you know, any any specifics. Yeah, that no, I, I, I understand. I just like I literally I can't I've uh, yeah, I can't say I won't I won't press you on that at all. I will I will say that not being able to say anything is infuriating. Mm, OK, Um. so that much. I can say, yeah, uh, but I, I can't. I literally can't talk about it. Let's uh, let's take a left turn here then and chat about your your fifth and and final final choice. Okay, so this is the most recent game because we've gone in chronological order, um, and uh, the game is Disco Elysium. Which 
is such a masterpiece that to have a perfect console that couldn't play Disco Elysium would feel like a loss. It's... I don't even know. It's How would you describe the game to someone who hasn't played it? It's not easy. It is a... It's a role-playing game where you play a detective who wakes up after a blackout. That is sort of the um, canvas on which the rest of the game is painted. And the rest of the game is that you can craft the psychology of this character. You can craft their politics. You can solve the crime in multiple ways based on the kind of person that you choose to be in this game. And the game takes place in an elaborately well thought out, uh, an elaborately detailed, well thought out world with its own set of global international politics that you can choose to learn as much about as you want or distance yourself from. So it is an it, it is as like a tabletop pen and paper RPG in in that way. In that like there's a ton of stuff you can do, or you can just beeline to what you think is the next step to take in the world. You can be an asshole, you can be generous and kind, you can be a communist, a neoliberalist, a fascist, you can be any kind a centrist, you can be any kind of person that you want to be. And that means that the game unfolds in different ways for different players and you see different interactions between these characters that you wouldn't have seen on the last time you played and given the density of the dialogue available to you it feels to me like a first a, a, a single player game that has the i don't know the broad spectrum of things that you would experience in an online game. Like, if I play Disco Elysium again, it's going to be different. And if I play it a third time, it's going to be different. And I won't have seen everything that the game has to offer. It's a, it's a really special game. It's great. And the music is so... God, the music is good. The Everything about it is so good. The art, the voice acting, it's so good. Yeah, it really felt like that game just came out of nowhere. I don't... I certainly hadn't, you know, been following it. And then it just appeared as this you know, intricate, incredibly well-realized thing. And then, they, you know, they've added to it with the voice acting and all of that and it just made it more alive and, and more special. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really incredible game. And it also seems like just as it appeared from nowhere, it will return to nowhere because it sounds like the company that made the game is under such uh, structural stress with people being laid off and suits and countersuits and who owns the IP. It it really feels like, yeah. in a way, an improv show that everybody got to be present for that will never happen again. Yeah, yeah it's uh, interesting that such a, like, you know, willfully political game has just become so embroiled in politics, you know, after its, after its release. Um, I, I almost, because there, there's a, you know, sort of anti-capitalist um, vein in the game. That when everything started to go down with, I, I don't know how to pronounce the company's name. It's Z-A slash U-M, Zaum. The game was such a success and then the company started to fall apart. I was like, is this an extended reality bit <laughs> for the next game? Like, is, is, are we seeing the lessons of capital 
being extracted from the, mm. these personalities and that's going to be part <laughs> of what the, no no it's just like performance art yeah <laughs> hey um thank you so much for your time and for like sharing your your games with us and and your story and everything um i'm going to put you on the spot slightly could you could you give us a name for your console how are we going to market this thing um the only play so you need if you have these games on it it's the only thing you need to play nice just before, just before I let you go, I mean, we talked a lot uh, about improv and also some of the ways that that it's helped you in 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 your in your life outside of like being on a stage. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people who who don't do improv like myself, you know, you watch it and your ability to react to and like just build on anything that's thrown at you is, is just seems like a superpower, really. You know, for people who maybe are interested in in developing that, whether it's you know to be on a stage or just to get through an interview, like you described, how do you how do you develop that that power? Is it possible? The 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 ability is teaching you how to listen. It's not teaching you to like hear better, but it is um, improv is just listening to what the other person has said and seeing like five versions of what they've said and all the information that it implies with just what they've said. So it's just about listening. If somebody starts a scene and it's like, where have you been? If you listen to that, listen to it with empathy, it's it's the other person is saying, I was worried about you. If you want to listen to it through antagonism, it's I'm disappointed in you. If you want to listen to it through like the relationship with a uh, military general or whatever, then it implies that you were on a spy mission. But just those words, you know, where where were you, Im- can imply so much. That, and if you listen to them in that sort of fractal way, it the sentence alone can imply whatever it is you say next. All you have to do is listen. So that's the first step of improv, is learning to listen. Amazing. Heather, th- thank you so much. It's been a genuine pleasure talking to you and I'm so so grateful for you coming on and talking to me. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And this has been this has been great fun. I love talking about video games and um, also being sort of staggered by uh, what you've told me about my own life. Thank you so much for listening this far into the podcast. I just wanted to give a little context to the conversation that I had with Heather. I spoke to her towards the end of January this year, and it was on the day that Adult Swim, the creator of Rick and Morty, the cartoon show to which Heather contributes as a writer, announced that it had ended its relationship with the show's co-creator, Justin Roiland, following his felony domestic abuse charges um, which had come to light earlier in the month quite heavy stuff obviously I just felt that it would have been inappropriate for me not to at least acknowledge what was going on with the show and after we finished speaking Heather said that um, however much she might want wanted to have respond to the question that I asked um, she is legally not allowed to do so um, which seems seems like an overreach on the part of the law that you can't even express your own personal feelings uh, when you're going through something like that or you're adjacent to something like that but I understand it as well so I hope uh, that gives a little bit of um, context to to that part of the interview aside from all that a, a wonderful guest 
wonderful to hear Heather's stories. She's had such an eclectic career and done so many interesting things. You can watch some of her sketches that she's created on YouTube, along with old clips from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway that she has appeared on. Um, and you can also see some of her improv shows that have been uh, filmed and, and also put on to YouTube. And of course, you can and you should listen to her excellent podcast, Get Played, uh, which comes out regularly and is absolutely worth your time. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. And you can also follow the podcast at myperfectconsole console with the o's removed from console so thank you again to heather for her time for coming on the show for telling us her excellent picks i will be back next week with one new guest they're five games and one more perfect console until then have a great week bye